from the bubbling cauldron of legal issues in the very heart of Nifty Radio, high above Eagle Street. Welcome. Today we will be discussing treats, not tricks, evidence for your trial bag. We start with using defendant's grand jury testimony on your direct case. Whenever the defendant testifies in the grand jury, that testimony becomes a party admission and is available to you as direct evidence. There is no CPL 71031A notice required since the defendant is represented by counsel at the time of the testimony and has freely chosen to testify. Any errors by the people in how the questioning is done and so forth in the grand jury is handled by motions based on a claimed violation of the defendant's CPL 19050 rights. At trial, you are permitted to introduce evidence of the description of the perpetrator given by the victim or an eyewitness to a law enforcement officer. Such evidence is not considered hearsay. Rather, it is introduced so the jury may test the reliability of the witness by comparing the description given at the time of the crime to how the defendant appeared at that time. Since it is not hearsay, not only the witness who gave the description but also the law enforcement officer to whom it was given may testify to its content at trial. While the defendant gets every benefit of reasonable doubt as to questions of fact at trial, when the court is deciding a legal issue, the people are entitled to any reasonable doubt the court has in deciding that legal issue. When the court is making such a decision from which the people are not permitted to appeal, the Court of Appeals in 1937 directed the trial courts to give the people every benefit of doubt when the choice of ruling is a close one. So says People v. Reed decided in 1937, and it is still good law today. You are permitted to introduce a trial evidence of a witness's identification of a co-defendant who was not on trial. For years, many courts would not permit such evidence to be introduced at trial based on their interpretation of the Court of Appeals holding in People v. Monroe. The Court of Appeals has rejected that interpretation of the Monroe decision and held in People v. Thomas in 2011 that such evidence was relevant because the ability of a witness to identify the co-defendant was an indication that the conditions at the location of the crime were conducive to having a reliable identification of the defendant made by that witness. While the defendant is given every possible right to present a defense at trial, this right does not include his or her ability to disregard the rules of evidence. While the trial courts are required to give the defendant every opportunity to present his or her defense, however tenuous it might be, this rule does not include a suspension of the rules of evidence. As the appellate courts have consistently written, the right to present a defense does not give the criminal defendant carte blanche to circumvent the rules of evidence. For example, the rule against the use of hearsay is not suspended so the defense may present its theory of defense. The Court of Appeals so wrote in the case of People v. Hayes in 2011, challenging the adequacy of a police investigation may constitute a permissible non-hearsay purpose where appropriate, but there is no rule requiring the automatic admission of any hearsay statement. 
also see the case of People v. Cepeda, a First Department case from 1994, which is quoted in all the appellate decisions as well as in the Court of Appeals cases, such as in the previously mentioned Hayes decision. And now, a special evidentiary treat just for you. As you know, any witness is usually not permitted to be impeached by omissions from previous testimony or statements, unless it is clear that the missing material would have been expected to have been mentioned as a proper response to the questions asked. However, when it comes to testimony by the defendant in the grand jury, you are more likely to be permitted to question the defendant as to the omissions from his or her grand jury testimony due to the nature of how defendants are usually questioned in the grand jury. In People v. Montalvo, a First Department case from 2001, the court held that the Bornholt rationale has only limited applicability to the defendant's testimony in the grand jury, where the defendant is, quote, afforded an opportunity to attempt to forestall an indictment by presenting any relevant and competent exculpatory information that may be available and is not limited to facts that the examining ADA chooses to elicit. The common procedure in asking a defendant questions in the grand jury is that either at the beginning or the end or both of her testimony, he or she is asked what would they like to tell the grand jury about the incident. This is indicative of the total opportunity the defendant has to mention any relevant factor, and an omission of a significant fact only raised at trial is a proper area for impeachment by omission. For case citation and further case authority for the issues discussed today, Please be sure to read the NIPTI practice tip on this subject, as well as the memo entitled Evidence, Common Trial Issues in New York. Our thanks as always to our crack producer, Jonathan Marconi Crespino. Good luck and stay ready, my friends. <laughs>